Joan Murray was a 47-year-old bank executive for the Bank of America who lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. She loved her family, her job, and her newly found passion for skydiving. Joan had participated in in several hours of of skydiving training, and up to this point, she had completed 35 jumps. She wasn't exactly a pro, but we could also say she wasn't a novice either. On September the 25th, 1999, Joan woke up, traveled the one-hour trip to Chester County, South Carolina, and joyfully geared up. Joan felt her excitement surge as the plane took off and ascended into the sky. As they reached the required altitude of 14,500 feet, Joan waited for the all clear and then rocketed herself out the plane door. She rejoiced in the fall with the feel of the wind pushing against her body as she looked out over the landscape. Approximately 45 seconds into her free fall, she pulled the handle to deploy her parachute. She expected the release of the chute that would slow her fall and allow her to coast safely to the ground. But instead, nothing happened. She had to think quickly. Her chute did not deploy as it as it had done 35 previous times. But it's okay. That's what a reserve parachute is for. She pulled the reserve chute and it deployed just as it should. She began to slow in her descent. And then the unthinkable happened. She began to spin. And the cords of her reserve chute became entangled. And once again, she started falling fast. At 700 feet, her reserve chute completely deflated. And she was speeding towards the ground at 80 miles an hour. Onlookers could only watch in horror as Joan's body slammed into the ground nearby. Emergency responders were were notified and quickly rushed to the scene. This was as bad as it gets. But when she hit the ground, almost to add insult to injury, she disturbed a mound of fire ants. She was stung hundreds of times. 
Joan was rushed to the hospital where doctors were sure she would not live. The entire right side of her body was crushed due to the impact. She hit so hard, it knocked out the feelings in all her teeth. Doctors were baffled. Baffled that she was alive. They expected her to die. But then they realized that the fire ant stings released a surge of adrenaline in her body, which stimulated her nervous system and kept her heart pumping. The doctors concluded it was the ants that saved her life. Like those little ants who saved the life of Joan Murray. This morning we are going to look at a passage where we see God use something that might seem trivial and insignificant to us. When in fact, it changed the course of history and saved the lives of God's people. Last week, we looked at Esther chapter 5, where two significant moments occurred. The first was a, a private banquet prepared by Queen Esther for her husband, King Ahasuerus, and his number two man, Haman. If you remember, Haman is an enemy of the Jews. And he has already obtained permission to exterminate them all. And it was at this banquet, right then and there, that Esther could have pointed her finger at Haman. But instead, apparently sensing that the time was not right, she offered a second banquet for the king and Haman the very next day. Haman was over the moon with an invitation to another banquet with the king and queen. And he made his way home to tell everybody about it. But he runs into Mordecai again. Mordecai is the centerpiece of Haman's hatred for the Jews. His blood boils just thinking about them. And he thinks about them all the time. And as Haman explains all of this to his wife and friends, they give him some advice to cheer him up. They recommend, and this will become significant later, that Haman immediately assign a work crew that very night to have a tall wooden stake erected so as to have Mordecai impaled on it the very next so it's not looking good for Mordecai or the Jews. 
But as I have been saying to you all along, God, even though he is not mentioned anywhere in this book, God is working behind the scenes. He is working on the king. And that brings us to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, and we will begin with verse 1. Esther 6, verse 1. Are you there? You got your iPhones all spooled up. Okay. During the night... The king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. During the night, the exact same night, that Haman was raising a wooden stake to have Mordecai impaled that same night, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. He's got insomnia. And in his sleepless state, instead of counting sheep, Instead of listening to music, instead of calling upon a concubine, and he had many, the king ordered that the book of records be brought in and read to him. Just so you know, these records were journals. They were journals from a royal perspective where every occurrence worthy of notice and every memorable fact was documented in a chronological fashion going all the way back to Cyrus who first ruled the Persian Empire. So King Ahasuerus wanted to listen to the record, probably hoping it would bore him back to sleep. Now before we move on, I do want to speak to this for a moment, on a, on a personal note. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I get sleepless and restless. I'm sure that occurs to all of us. And as a general practice, for me, as a general practice, I will ask the Lord if there is someone I need to pray for that moment. Not always, but as a general practice, when I find myself sleepless, I will ask the Lord, is there someone I should be praying for at that very moment? Other times, he might give me a thought, especially as I'm working on a sermon, and I need to go write it down before I forget it. Whatever the case Instead of seeing your restlessness as simply a case of insomnia, maybe the Lord is trying to get your attention and you need to respond to him. Okay? Okay, back to our story. In the king's sleepless state, the servant reads from the book of records while the king listens. And beginning with verse 2, we are told, 
It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. As the servant reads and the king listens, it just so happens that of all that could have been read, the servant reads a particular portion of the record that was written some five years earlier. And in the record, it was found that Mordecai had uncovered an assassination plot against the king. If you remember, Mordecai was assigned to the king's gate in some official capacity. And while he was there, he overheard these two guys conspiring to assassinate the king. And so he reported it to Queen Esther, who in turn alerted the king. And Mordecai was given full credit for doing this. Well, at this point in the reading, the king interrupts and he asks his servant, What recognition or reward did Mordecai receive for doing all of this? Normally, this king would quickly honor someone who did something special. That's what he did. But in this case, it was discovered that nothing had been done for Mordecai. There was nothing written in the book of records that indicated he had been honored. And so it would seem that Mordecai's act of loyalty had been completely overlooked and forgotten by everybody. But not God. Consider this for a moment. If Mordecai had been recognized and rewarded soon after he saved the life of the king some five years earlier, on this sleepless night in the palace of Susa, Mordecai would not be a top priority. But on this particular night, the king now realizes he owes his very life to Mordecai. And also keep in mind, the king knows nothing about Haman's plan to kill Mordecai. That's Haman's plan. As soon as the king learned that nothing had been done for Mordecai, 
he was shocked. And he started to think about how to honor this man who apparently slipped through the cracks. Wondering who on his staff could help him make things right. Well, the king quickly gets his answer. Beginning with verse 4. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which was prepared for him. I love this. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. The king is mulling over this matter about Mordecai when he hears someone in the outer court. The sun is just coming over the horizon and the king asks a servant, who's out there so early in the morning and he's told it's Haman. And we know that Haman rushed to the palace as early as he could to get a jump start on making his plea to the king to have Mordecai executed that very day. For Haman, the early bird gets the worm. So he wanted to be first in line to have an audience with the king to finish off Mordecai once and for all. Now Haman, just like everyone else, could not enter the king's presence without being invited. We talked about that. But apparently, it was his lucky day. For while he was still standing in the outer court, the king is already calling for him. Tell Haman to come right on into my bedroom. From Haman's perspective, this is working out better than he could have ever expected. This is going to be a great day. But before Haman could get a word out of his mouth, before he could falsely accuse Mordecai of being a menace to society who needs to be executed immediately, the king had a question for him. And in verse 6, we are told, this is so awesome. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man who the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, so good, so good. Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Gets me right there. For Haman, the day is getting better and better. The king asks him, what should be done for that special someone I want to honor in a great way? And of course, Haman, who is a very proud and arrogant man, assumes the king is talking about him because that's what proud and arrogant people think. I mean, who, who else could it be? Who, who, 
who else is the number two man in the Persian Empire? Who else got invited to a private banquet with the king and queen? In fact, he has another one to attend that very day. Who else? No one but Haman. So for Haman, he assumes this is his moment to bask in glory. And he gives his reply to the king beginning in verse 7. Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on a horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. If you notice, Haman says nothing about riches or property or power because he already has those things. Instead, he wants to feed his ego. And he begins to list every glory he can imagine for himself. Haman thinks he is being allowed to describe his own rewards. And of all things, he wants to experience the honor of being treated like a king. And so he begins with a royal robe. King's clothing. A robe that the king, the king Ahasuerus, had already worn. This would be a great honor. And it would give him the appearance of a king. Haman also wanted to ride on a horse. A horse the king had already ridden. A horse with a symbol of the royal crown on its head. Some read this passage and think the crown was to be worn by Haman. But that's not the case. With the Persians, horses were often decorated with ornaments of royalty, which would include turbans and crowns fitted on their heads. Again, Haman wanted to appear kingly. Then last but not least, Haman wanted to flaunt his glory by being paraded through the city square like a king, all the while being led by a prince who loudly proclaims, thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires to honor. Haman had a lust for respect and glory. And he wanted to be treated like a king in front of as many people as possible. Haman couldn't imagine anything greater for that special someone himself. The king thought this was a great idea. And beginning with verse 10, we read, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, 
and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Oh. <laughs> Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on a horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires to honor. What? King Ahasuerus tells Haman to ensure all those things he secretly wanted for himself were to be bestowed on Mordecai. And to make matters worse, the king says, Haman, I want you to be the one who personally leads the horse through the city square and makes the announcement about how great this man is who sits on the horse. With that command, there is no way Haman can now say to the king, I want to kill the guy you want to honor. That doesn't look good. So instead of impaling Mordecai on a wooden stake that day, Haman puts him on a horse in royal robes and parades him around the city square for all to see. Did you notice that the king knows Mordecai is a Jew? If you remember... When the king blindly, I want to emphasize that, blindly authorized the extermination of the Jews under the advice of Haman, Haman only told the king they were a certain people. They were a certain people whom he described as being different and rebellious. And in the king's best interest, he recommended these certain people be destroyed. Anyway, Haman had to be in complete shock. This was supposed to be his big day. But it turned into a day of great Humiliation. He walked into the palace early in the morning to get the king's permission to have one Jew, just one Jew, exterminated. He's already arranged to have the entire Jewish race exterminated in a matter of months. But he can't kill this one guy named Mordecai. He thought Ahasuerus was going to honor him like a king. But now the tables have turned. And Haman must personally honor the man he can't stand and wants to kill. Because of one sleepless night, one sleepless night, God has turned Haman's world completely upside down as he carries out the king's command. Then we come to the last portion of this chapter. And beginning with verse 12, we are told, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. 
But Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you had have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Period. When the parade was over, Mordecai goes back to work at the king's gate. While Haman is a wreck. And he rushes home with his tail between his legs to tell everyone what had just happened. He expects to be consoled by his family and friends. He needs a hug. He needs some encouragement. But they have nothing for him. The Persians were a very superstitious people. And it alarmed them that Mordecai, the Jew, should be dead, but he was honored. And as a result, they warn Haman that nothing good is going to happen to him. It's the beginning of the end. Haman takes it all in. Maybe a vacation is in order right about now. Maybe he needs to figure out a way to weasel out of this one. But before he can do anything, there's a knock at the door. And he is swept out of the house and escorted to the palace for Queen Esther's second banquet. This was a banquet he once desired. But now it's a banquet he dreads. If this chapter teaches us anything, God's timing and His ways are always On the very night that Haman was erecting a tall wooden stake to impel Mordecai the Jew, King Ahasuerus was sleepless in Susa. Although the king had options, he chose to review the book of records. As the servant reads to the king from volumes upon volumes of entries, he comes to a portion of the record which documents an incident involving Mordecai that had occurred five years earlier. Mordecai had saved the king's life, but his loyalty was never honored. The king's insomnia came at the exact right time. And now the king wants to right a wrong. He wants to see Mordecai recognized and rewarded. And just at the right time, Haman shows up early 
in the morning. He comes to plead for Mordecai's execution. But before he can even get a word out of his mouth, the king commands him to honor the man he wants killed. God's timing and His ways are always perfect. Even those ways that might seem trivial and insignificant to us at the time. And let me explain what I mean with a sneak peek, so to speak. The king's divine insomnia We're going to call it. The king's divine insomnia will save the life of Mordecai. But not only that, it will also serve as a springboard that will change the fate of the Jews who are already set to be exterminated. And if you really want to think far, far ahead. The rescue of the Jews will ultimately lead to the redemption of mankind. For Jesus came from the line of David the tribe of Judah, the Jewish nation of Israel. God's timing and His ways are always perfect, even when it doesn't always seem that way. A man was shipwrecked on an uh, uninhabited island And he painstakingly built a little hut for protection from the elements and to keep a few of the items he had salvaged from the wreck. For weeks, he lived only with the hot sun, the cold nights, and the tropical storms for company. Prayerfully, he he scanned the horizon for the approach of a ship, any ship. But there was none. Then one evening, when he returned from a search for food, he was terrified to find that his little hut was in flames. As he stood there, unable to put out the fire, he was crushed by the disaster. What few possessions he had were now gone up in smoke. He went to sleep that night near the ashes, listening to the surf pounding on the sand and listening to his heart throbbing in despair. Early the next morning, he awoke to find a ship anchored off the island. The first ship he had seen in weeks. Still trying to believe his eyes, he then heard a man's voice. Who said, we saw your smoke signal and we came to rescue you. For this man, God seemed so distant and so absent for so long. But all along, God was working to bring a ship 
at just the right time when everything had gone up in smoke to bring about his deliverance. That's what God did for Mordecai. That's what he will do for the Jews. And that's what he does for his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this time in your, in your word. I thank you that you are true to your word. And what you did way back then, you still do today. Father, I will admit there are times when I wonder where you are. There are times when I, I question what you do. There are times when I worry about your timing. I'm just being honest with you, Lord. But irrespective of how I feel, there is the truth. And the truth is, whether I understand it or not, whether I feel it or not, your timing and your ways are always perfect. You are so good. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Father, I pray that you just draw us closer to you. I pray, Lord, that Jesus would be our absolute everything. That he would increase. And that we would decrease. May you be honored and glorified. In us and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I enjoyed that chapter. I thought that was an awesome, awesome chapter in Esther. Probably my favorite chapter in Esther. And it would be so easy. So easy. To find enjoyment in seeing how the tables have turned on Haman. He's going to get what he deserves. Right? He's an evil man. And he's going to get exactly what he deserves. And then I got to look in the mirror. Then I got to look in the mirror. And thank you, Lord. I do not get what I deserve. God is merciful and He is gracious. In some respects, I'm a Haman. We all are. But God loves us. He desires the best for us. Does that mean there will not be pain? No. That's not what, that's not what that means. Does that mean there will be no suffering? No. Or suffering? No. Not at all. But our God knows exactly what he's doing. His timing is perfect. His ways are perfect. Even though we do not understand them. In fact, doesn't he say, my thoughts and your ways, my ways are not your thoughts and your ways. 
My thoughts and my ways are far above yours. And so when we find ourselves in those situations where, God, I don't understand what you're doing. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. What are we left with? God, I trust you. I have to trust you. I have to trust you that you know what you're doing. I have to trust that you are true to your word. That you are who you say you are. You will do what you say you will do. That's where we get, right? Sometimes he has to painfully bring us to that point. Kicking and screaming. We serve a good God. He wants you to trust him. His timing is perfect. His ways are perfect. Maybe you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to him. He loves you more than you could ever know. Maybe you're here and you're looking for a church home. Our family would love to include you. (laughs) Or maybe there's something else. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe there's something else going on. Whatever the case, I'm here. I can pray with you now. I can pray with you later. We can talk later. But however the Lord moves you this morning, I would just ask you to respond to Him. Keep up. Let me close us in prayer. I'll pray for our offering and also... Uh, for our fellowship afterwards. I just thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, it's just good to see you. Father, uh, again, I want to just thank you for who you are and what you do. And you're so good to us. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your patience. Oh, your patience and your forgiveness. Thank you for making us your own. Thank you that you desire to hear our voice in prayer. I thank you that we can call upon you. I thank you that you are faithful even though we are not. You are so good. Fathers, we come to a portion of our service where we give back what you've given to us. Heavenly Father, bless the gift and the giver. And a Father, as a body of Christ, Give us the wisdom and discernment in how to use your money. For it is yours, not ours. And the Father, for our fellowship afterwards, Father, I pray that you just be sweet and uplifting and joyous. Give us an awesome time together. Bless the food to our bodies. Bless those who have brought food and prepared it. Thank you, Father, for again, for who you are and what you do. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.